Good morning. Welcome again. Uh, we continue in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in what's called the Gospel of Matthew. This is the first big chunk of Jesus' teaching in this account of Jesus' ministry. We're in chapter 5. If you're new to the Bible, we call the big numbers chapters and the little numbers verses. This is Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start at verse 33. We'll read through verse 42. This is Jesus teaching. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. No one has ever seen God, but... The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. And so, Jesus, we ask that you this morning would make the Father known to us in your teaching here. Uh, I confess, we confess that uh, this is a hard teaching. Uh, We have many questions about it, uh, many qualifications that we might apply to it. So help us not to uh, do what so many were doing uh, when you said these words, Jesus, uh, evading what God actually teaches but help us to understand it and help us to joyfully submit to it and apply it in the ways that please you and serve our neighbors. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, Right in the middle of the Bible, you have this wonderful collection of songs and poetry called the Psalms, uh, expressing uh, all kinds of prayers of all kinds of people in various situations, mostly Psalms uh, expressing sadness, expressing anger, expressing joy. Uh, they are, form a, a very important part in our worship services, in the life and the history of the church. Um, one thing I noticed a couple of years ago that struck me as I was reading through the Psalms, for the first of, one thing I noticed for the first time was how often these Psalms make a link between deceptive words and oppressive actions. Uh, a link between our relationship with the truth and our relationships with other people. Lies and violence, according to the Bible, are close friends. My favorite socialist, George Orwell, said that all tyrannies rule through fraud and force, but once the fraud is exposed, they must rely exclusively on force. In these two paragraphs, Jesus is dealing with the way that we speak and the way that we treat other people. Especially in this context, Jesus is talking about when they mistreat us. How do you respond? Jesus is putting his finger on the way that we like to play games with these things, on the ways that we like to find loopholes in these two areas, in our speech 
and in our status. Our world, in many ways, is addicted to distorting the truth in order to gain or to maintain status. Uh, Many of us hardly bat an eye at how politicians of all stripes evade questions, change the subject, and speak in shallow platitudes. We don't even really expect them to speak to us like adults, to speak the truth honestly and forthrightly. Uh, In many ways in our world, what matters is that my tribe wins, that my tribe looks good. And so in a world of so much spin and manipulation, it's not surprising at all that Americans have so little trust in all kinds of institutions. And, but it's, it's not just a problem up there or out there. It's uh, this sacrifice of the truth on the altar of power extends also into many of our day-to-day interactions with other people. Uh, This happens in the office, it happens in the classroom, on the playground, it happens on the Twitter feed. Truth, for us in many ways, as a society, truth is what works. And what works is what wins. But Jesus here is calling his disciples to something entirely different. Uh, First thing he's calling us to is a simple truthfulness of speech. Verses 33 to 37 And then second, relatedly, Jesus is calling us to a courageous sacrifice of status. Verses 38 to 42. So look first at that uh, first paragraph, the truthful simplicity of speech. Jesus has now been doing this a few times in chapter 5. He's laying out a command from the Old Testament law of Moses. He's deflecting some kind of misinterpretation of it. And then he's underscoring its true meaning, its true significance and application for his disciples today in his kingdom. And so now he does that again. In verse 33, he cites the frequent Old Testament prohibition of breaking your vow, breaking your oaths. Jesus says, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. Oaths don't play as prominent of a role in our society today as they have in many societies throughout history, but the basic idea is that when you are in a situation that is particularly important, particularly serious, you are formally calling upon God to be a witness to the fact that you are speaking the truth and you are asking him to deal with you accordingly. There's examples all over the Old Testament of people making oaths about various things. There's examples in the New Testament of people making oaths, like the Apostle Paul does it a bunch of times in his letters. And so kind of like how we mentioned last week uh, when we were talking about how divorce is a legal provision uh, that was a way to deal with the realities of a situation that's already happening, a sinful, broken, sad situation, oaths similarly exist because people tend to lie when their self-interest is at stake. Ideally, there would never be a need to take an oath, just like ideally there would never be a need for police officers or locks on your front door. So that's the Old Testament principle. It's still relevant for today. Don't lie under oath. Do what you are promised that you're going to do, Jesus teaches us. 
But then in verse 34 to 36, he deals with a problem that people have made out of this good Old Testament command. His contemporaries had come up with all kinds of elaborate loopholes that would get them off the hook for actually having to tell the truth when they were under oath. It's kind of like, I guess, today, you know, where you cross your hands behind your back, and therefore, you know, whatever I say doesn't really matter, and I, I don't actually have to mean it. Uh, back then, uh, many of them were saying things like this. Uh, if you swore an oath by the earth, well, then you didn't really have to keep it. You didn't have to follow through on it. Uh, but if you swore an oath by heaven, because that's God's realm, well, then you really are bound, and you really do have to do it. Uh, they even had distinctions like this. If you swore an oath by Jerusalem, it wasn't binding. But if you swore an oath toward Jerusalem, it was. Uh, these distinctions that they made about when you had to keep your oaths and when you didn't were often made over things and places that had to do with God versus things that didn't have to do with God. But Jesus calls them all out. He says, no, stop doing this. Don't make these kinds of ridiculous hair-splitting oaths at all. I think that's what he means when he says, don't swear at all. And he kind of gives the kinds of oaths he's talking about, the heaven and earth kinds of oaths. Uh, all of this distinction, all these hair-splitting, is actually fostering the very kind of problem that oaths were meant to deal with in the first place, the problem of playing games with the truth, the problem of paying, playing fast and loose with what we say. And so Jesus says to them, because they were really fixated on, well, it's okay when you do it with things that don't have to do with God, but otherwise, yeah, the things that have to do with God. Jesus was saying, everything belongs to God. He says, everything speaks to God. Everything is under God's control. Uh, even, Jesus says, sorry to some of you, even the color of your hair is up to God. You can't even control that, so who cares if you swear by your head? So Jesus says, no more of this, no more making these hair-splitting distinctions. If everything is God's, then what that means is that all speech, everything you say, must honor the truth, because everything is God. Jesus says in verse 37 that his disciples need to speak honestly. He says, let you, what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Uh, this, I don't think, is dealing with unusual ethical situations like what you should do if the Nazis come to your door and ask you if you're hiding Jewish people. But the main point is obvious. Those who claim to worship the truthful God must themselves speak truthfully. All of these elaborate rules about when your oaths were binding or not, uh, those might sound pretty bizarre to us today. Like we all kind of chuckle, like, ha, 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 what were those people thinking? That's so silly. But when you stop and think about it, about what our society is like, think about how much we base on appearances, how much we base on the impressions that we gain and have of other people. We, too, have all kinds of ways that we like to play with the truth. I like to, you know, we have to ask ourselves, do I like to exaggerate my achievements? Do I like to exaggerate other people's failures? When somebody bothers me, is my first thought to assume the worst about them? and to paint myself in the best possible light? Do I follow through with what I promise? Do I meet deadlines? Do I leave the office when I'm supposed to, when I've told my kids I'm going to be at their recital? When I tell somebody at church, I'll pray for you, brother, do you actually do it? Uh, maybe this is uh, part of the problem Jesus is dealing with, but personally, sometimes I say, I'll say to people, I'll try to remember to pray for you. So at least if I forget, then I was honest with them that I tried and I didn't do it. So that's the first piece, uh, the truthful simplicity of speech. But now Jesus moves on to the courageous sacrifice of status. 
Uh, in many ways, what Jesus is talking about might sound kind of weak or wimpy at first, but I think all of these things he's talking about in this second paragraph are incredibly courageous. So now he does the same thing again. He gives the Old Testament principle first. That's verse 38. He says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, this is something that pops up a few different times in the law of Moses in the Old Testament. And it's basically the idea that the punishment should fit the crime. Sometimes uh, you see Gandhi bumper stickers that say that if uh, we followed this principle, the whole world would turn out blind, which is, uh, I think, kind of a pleasant thing to think about for a few minutes until you realize what it would mean for a world like ours if evil and violence were never punished, if they were never deterred. This principle of criminal law is actually a mercy from God. Uh, both because it calls for real justice in this world, that there should be retribution, but also, it's also a mercy because it limits our tendency to ratchet up vengeance on each other. Uh, you take out my eye, and I'll take out yours. I'll take out both of yours. Jesus is not rejecting this principle for legal or criminal law, I don't think. Jesus is once again dealing with the way that his contemporaries took a good law and used it as an excuse for something else. They found in this principle, this legal principle for the, the legal system, they found in it a blank check for vengeance and hostility and retaliation in their own personal lives. They said, oh, an eye for an eye. Well, okay, I guess maybe uh, that means that uh, when my wife you know, makes a snide remark to me, I'm not supposed to bite her head off, but it I guess it means that I can make a snide remark back to her, uh, that I get to get, give what I get. But Jesus is saying this. He says, I say to you, don't resist the one who's evil. And then he gives four situations where you apply the command. Uh, they all apply to situations in my own personal life. I don't think Jesus is talking about principles for society or the world at large. Notice, as we go through these, how all of these situations, all four of them, are focused on the other person. They're focused on how I can best love this person and serve this person in the midst of a very difficult for me situation. Even when I'm being mistreated, Jesus is calling us to consider the person who's doing it. It's not a prohibition of all kinds of resistance, period, but I think it's a basic principle. It's something like a default setting for our hearts and our relationships. Jesus himself resisted all kinds of people in various kinds of ways, especially when other people were being mistreated. Jesus did this as he openly and confrontationally criticized and pushed back against hypocritical leaders. Jesus did this when he cleansed the temple in Jerusalem of corrupt money changers. Uh, Jesus, when he walked into the temple, did not just stage a calm and quiet sit-in, he angrily flipped over tables, he made a whip out of rope, and he started whipping the people who were doing it. But the point is that gentleness and kindness and sacrifice should be our default posture towards people who mistreat us because we trust that one day God will sort it all out. Jesus is calling us as his disciples to let go of our greed for our own status and our own reputation. He's calling us to let go of this knee-jerk impulse to demand our own rights, to demand our own interests. And so the first situation where Jesus applies that is in a situation where you are insulted. 
He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. A slap across the face, especially in Jesus' world, was a huge insult to one's dignity. And Jesus is saying, let's just let it go. He's not talking about a violent threat to your life or your property. Uh, The Bible is clear that self-defense, like defensive war, is legitimate. It's even a duty. Romans 12, the verse we read earlier in the service, says that we should never avenge ourselves, but that we should leave it to God's wrath. God's the one who carries out vengeance for us. But then a few verses later, in Romans 13, Paul says that God's purpose for civil government is to violently punish evildoers. And Paul says explicitly three times that they are carrying out wrath. They're carrying out God's wrath on his behalf. So just, you know, within about the span of 10 verses, Paul says, don't avenge yourselves, leave it to God's wrath. And he says, and here's the people who are carrying out God's wrath. Some Christians are involved with that, carrying out God's wrath, his vengeance. They do that as their day job. They are in the military. They are in the police insofar as they are doing it justly and according to his law. And sometimes, in an emergency, we may individually be called to put on the hat of the magistrate on behalf of myself or somebody else, to defend myself or defend someone else. Uh, In that sense, in that emergency situation, I have become the one to carry out God's wrath against the evildoer. But Jesus is not talking about emergency situations of self-defense and grave threat to you and your stuff. Jesus is talking about how you act in your normal personal interactions, especially when you're insulted. Neither Jesus nor Paul literally turned their other cheeks when they were slapped. There's stories about that. Neither of them actually do it. But both of them trusted God to deal with their enemies later. The Apostle Peter says that when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. But he says he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. It's this God-word focus. God will deal with this. God will take care of me in the future. And so Jesus is calling us to do the same. He says, lay down your desire to get even, to look good. He says, trust that God sees and knows that God will avenge, whether it's in this life or the next. Now again, it's not saying that we should just be a doormat to other people or that we should invite or encourage or reward our own victimization. There are times when even Christians, following Jesus faithfully, there are times when Christians need to stand up for themselves. They need to escape the situation. They need to call the police. They need to defend themselves. Uh, One author, I I like this, one author said that Jesus is not rejecting self-defense. Jesus is rejecting self-defensiveness, if that makes sense. And it's certainly, Jesus is certainly not talking about turning other people's cheeks. Uh, We should not overlook what's being done to those around us. We should speak up for them. We should fight for them. We should defend them. Jesus' disciples must be concerned with injustice in the world around us. But at the same time, we live in a society that takes offense at all kinds of things, even little things. There are uh, significant parts of our society consumed with assigning people to categories of oppression and victimhood based on which uh, box they fit into. But Jesus calls his disciples away from this kind of fixation on how I'm being offended or how I'm being treated. 
Jesus calls us away from this demand for perfect justice in my life, in this world, right away. But even more than Jesus calling us away from something, we said this last week, Jesus is calling us towards something. There's a positive command here. Jesus is calling us to a proactive concern for the other person, even somebody who's mistreating me. He's calling us not just to passive meekness, like just roll up in a ball on the ground and just let them do whatever they want, but Jesus here actually is calling us to an active kindness. Uh, That itself is an incredibly courageous thing to do in a situation like this. One author puts it like this, disciples have their center of gravity outside themselves in Jesus. This is how you're able to do this. He says that compared to the world around them, they are more poised, less threatened, more relaxed, less unbelieving. Jesus' next example, that's an insult, his next example concerns a lawsuit. If anybody would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Uh, Now remember, this is easy for us to forget. In the ancient world, only a handful of very wealthy people had more than one set of clothing. And so when Jesus says that if somebody sues you for your inner garment, well, give them your coat as well. All that leaves you is your underwear. It's an amazing hyperbolic statement about how willing we should be to part with our possessions. Jesus is not saying that Christians can never be involved in a lawsuit. He's not saying they can never be involved in the legal system. He's not saying we can never try to recover property that's been stolen from us. But just like Jesus said we should have a loose grasp on our ego and our status, Jesus is also saying by implication we should have a loose grasp on our stuff. If somebody unjustly takes away your possessions, Jesus says you can be calm, you can be patient, you can trust in the Lord, knowing that he sees everything and he will take care of everything. He'll always take care of you, even if you lose your stuff. The third situation that Jesus applies this default principle of non-resistance to is this situation of oppression. Jesus says that if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This is a specific reference to the Roman military. Uh, They gave themselves, once they had conquered uh, Palestine and installed themselves as the governing regime, they had given themselves the right to force anybody in occupied territories to carry their gear for up to one mile. And of course, the Jewish people hated this. This is humiliating. This reminds them that they are a subjugated, conquered people. And so it's shocking that Jesus says to his disciples when the Roman soldier comes along and says, okay, here's my stuff. You owe me one mile. Jesus says, well, go, go two. And once again, Jesus is calling his disciples to this default posture of being willing to let go of my rights and my demands, even in the face of something that's obviously unjust. And it applies to personal experiences of private injustice but it also applies to my own experience of public injustice. The first, but not only, this is really important, the first, but not only posture of a Christian towards unjust abuse of authority is patience and respect. But as we've been saying, Jesus does not call us to be total doormats without exception. And he's certainly not calling us to demand or allow other people to be doormats. The Apostle Paul, in the book of Acts, insists on his rights as a Roman citizen when he's being unjustly imprisoned and arrested. 
I've been uh, learning a little bit about the civil rights movement uh, in the 50s and the 60s. Uh, you know, a lot of Christians at the time, well, what's the big deal about this? You know, you just need to be patient, you just need to wait. Why are you making a big deal about these things? It would be a gross abuse of these verses to wave them at black Christians and say, well, you should just be willing to kind of put up with it all. There does come a point at which it is not only acceptable, but even right for Christians to stand up and say, no, you can't treat me like this. You can't treat them like that. The exhortations that Jesus is giving us don't call a spouse or children just to go along with domestic violence. Uh, They don't baptize whatever a government might want to do just because it's the government or just because they say it's for everybody's good. Somebody in a position of authority, whether it's in the home or in the church or in the government, they can never ever command us to disobey God. And there are times when Christians may disobey commands that do not themselves expressly call you to disobey God, but are themselves going beyond the limits that God has given to them. But again, let's not forget what Jesus is saying. And we spend a lot of time on what he's not saying because these things sound pretty impractical and strange and bizarre. But don't forget what he is saying, that your default posture, if you're a Christian, most of the time in most situations should be one of respect and patience, even towards unjust authority. That you should not obsess over what you deserve because you know that God's watching. You know that God is not only the one who raises up kings, but he also tears them down when he wants to. Now, this is really hard, even though there are situations where we do need to say no. The many situations where you do need to go the extra mile are, of course, going to be very painful and costly. It is hard to say no to ourselves, to deny our demands, to sacrifice our status and our stuff. Jesus is calling us to something that's not just a little bit different than the way the world works. He's calling us to something that's very different than the way the world works, a very different way of relating to other people, especially people that mistreat you. The last situation where Jesus calls us to exercise this principle of sacrifice is when somebody else is in need. He says, give to the one who begs from you, don't refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, the basic idea here is that you should be extraordinarily generous toward other people, particularly the poor. The idea that uh, we should be happy to give up our possessions and our comfort and our time when other people need it. I've wrestled with this one over the years. Uh, At first, It sounds like Jesus is saying, uh, let people have whatever they want from you. Uh, Even though we know, when you think about it, we know that doing so would be harmful not only to ourselves and our families, but also, in many cases, to the person who's demanding something from us or wanting something from us. Just after college, uh, I was reading this passage uh, and struggling with what it really meant. Uh, I think I had just been listening to some really super-duper spiritual Christians telling me that Jesus here is being totally literal and that you had to be extra, super-duper radical and follow this to the max if you were going to be a real Christian. And so that very day that I was reading this passage and struggling with it, somebody actually showed up at my front door wanting my guitar. Uh, It was a guitar that I had spent all of my high school graduation money on to buy. It was really expensive to me at the time and very precious to me. But I thought, well, Jesus said I should give people whatever they want, and so I guess I have to give them my guitar. And so I gave it to the guy without asking any questions, and I figured in my head, oh, God's going to really reward me for this. I'm being really sacrificial. Something really great's going to happen. So you can imagine my dismay when this acquaintance, I barely knew this guy, he returned it the next day with the neck totally flopping off the body of the guitar because he denied it for like 12 hours. But then eventually he said, well, yeah, I gave it to my friend, and he dropped it, and it totally broke. Um, He was not really sorry. He didn't really care. Uh, He just shrugged it off. 
uh, and he was not interested at all in why I had given it to him in the first place. There wasn't even some great spiritual moment of like, wow, you're really different. Tell me about Jesus. It was just like, who cares? I don't know. Not my problem anymore. And so, you know, I think about this over the years. Did I do the right thing that day? Maybe. Uh, but I'm not so sure. St. Augustine, in one of his sermons on this passage, points out that Jesus says that we are to give to the one who asks. It's focused on the other person. Jesus does not say, give whatever somebody asks for. And maybe that's a good way to approach it. Uh, I probably could and should have given something to this guy, maybe given him a guitar lesson, given him some time, given him some conversation, gone with him to show his friend the guitar. And in the same way, even if we know that we probably should not be giving cash to panhandlers because of what many of them are spending it on, Jesus is calling us, let's not forget this, Jesus is calling us to real, meaningful, sacrificial generosity toward people in need. And so remember, all through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been disarming this amazing ability that we have to find loopholes in God's law, to find reasons that we don't really have to listen to it. And so we need to be careful uh, that we don't try to evade what Jesus is actually saying. Real, frequent, costly generosity. Be careful that we are not just trying to evade that because we can come up with all kinds of reasons that it might possibly go to waste. Jesus is calling us to something very different than the world around us. He's calling us to simple truthfulness in our speech, just saying what's actually on our hearts and our minds. Jesus is calling us to courageous sacrifice of our status in all kinds of situations. And the reason he's calling us to something so different this is really important. The reason he's calling us to something so different is because he's so different. Because he's so different. He is God in the flesh. He's come to show us God's abundant way of life and to lead us into it. And so, you know, it's easy when you read the Sermon on the Mount. Like, this is me as a cocky uh, college student thinking that I was Mr. Spiritual. It's easy when you read the Sermon on the Mount to think, I can be the real hero here. I can be an extra super-duper sacrificial Christian. But we need to see that Jesus is the real hero here. Jesus is the one who does these things for us. At his trial, at the end of his life, Jesus was asked under oath who he was. And at that trial, Jesus spoke the simple truth about himself, even though he knew that it was going to lead him into horrible suffering. He was going to mean that he was going to be murdered at the end of an unjust trial. And then after that, Jesus courageously sacrificed his status as God's chosen king. Uh, Jesus really, literally was slapped across the face. He didn't fight back. After that, Jesus' clothes were stripped from him, gambled away, leaving him naked, humiliated before everybody. And then after that, Jesus was forced to carry his cross. He uses the same word here that Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the crowds and the soldiers all around jeering at him as he carried his cross up the hill. And then, of course, that whole time, what's Jesus doing? Jesus is giving generously. He's giving to those in need. He's giving to us, even though we don't deserve it. Even though we often snub him. Even though we often misuse his generosity and his grace. Jesus gave us his very life. He bore the terrible consequences on the cross of all the ways that we have evaded God. All the ways that we find loopholes in our speech and in our actions. All the ways that we've clung to our ego and to our stuff. Jesus gave us everything. He didn't refuse us anything 
that we might need, all at horrible cost to himself. And so all you can do is accept it. All you can do is enjoy it. And that's the key to really actually learning to obey these amazing commands that he gives us in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for all the ways uh, that we, all the ways that I like to find loopholes and evade uh, real meaningful obedience. Uh, your, your way, your word, your law is good. Uh, it's wonderful, it's wise, but we think we know so much better. Help us to have a much looser grasp on our status and on our stuff. Help us to have a much more honest relationship with truth in our speech, with one another, with the people around us. We need so much mercy. We're so grateful that Jesus has died for us, for all the ways that we continue to fail to do all these things. Help us to live in gratitude, and in that gratitude, Lord, help us to become more like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.